The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And again, it's really nice to be here with everyone. This unusual time, and maybe you've heard the news, but it's an especially intense and painful, difficult time here in Minneapolis, where I live. In fact, the uh, riots possibly going on again tonight. We've been hearing a lot of sirens. They're just about a mile away from where I am right now. And our Dharma Center, Common Ground Meditation Center, is even closer, just a few blocks away, where five buildings were burnt down and just tremendous destruction. So very raw and real expression of anger and despair probably in what's happening in our city. And then we have the wider swirl and confusion of the pandemic. And then we have our ongoing problems of racism and economic injustice and sexism. And and then we have our own habit energies and how many of them are not so helpful and not so skillful. And we are quite literally oppressed by our own habit energies. Isn't that true? <laughs> it's true for me. So this is the world we live in. And it, it seemed, you know, useful always. It's not a topic we're probably ever going to exhaust. It just feels so appropriate for a group of human beings to gather in this way and to reflect, well, what do we do about this situation, being a human being, having a conditioned mind, being in this very messy and imperfect world, out there, imperfect and messy, in here, imperfect and messy, true? And this is our situation and, you know, these teachings from the Buddha, they definitely offer a way, a path. And, you know, the way we often talk about this, this won't be new for most of you. You know, the Buddha talks about the path as this dance, this integration, and this beautiful flowering of these two qualities in our heart the quality of the of insight, the deepening of understanding, seeing things as they are, and the quality of tranquility and calm. And the stability of calm supports the deepening of understanding. That makes a lot of sense. But also the deepening of understanding, this heart, seeing things clearly just as they are, really allows this heart to be more and more calm. So calm or tranquility and insight, wisdom, they really work together. One of the nicer uh, similes for this, I don't know if you know Ajahn Chandako. Some of you in Seattle, I think a couple of you from the Seattle area, he sometimes says, given a Dharma talk, but he's the abbot of a monastery in New Zealand. And he wrote a booklet, I think it's a phrase that comes from the tradition, but his booklet about this integration of 
tranquility and insight, he called uh, a honed and heavy axe. And the idea of this simile is, you know, if you have a really sharp axe, but it has no weight, it's not very functional. Or if you have a nice, heavy, solid axe head, you know, big, but it's really dull, not such a useful instrument for cutting down a tree. But if you have, if you have an axe, you know, the head of the axe is both heavy, it's got some real oomph, and really sharp, that's an axe that does its job. And it's the same with, uh, you know, the simile, of course, is tranquility and the insight. The insight, the wisdom, is the sharpness, and the tranquility, the calm, is the stability, is the weight. It's like, when, I, when this heart, mind, and body is calm, tranquil, there's a sense of being rooted in the moment. Even, I sometimes use the word solid, even though we talk a lot in Buddhism, in our experience, when the meditation gets solid with calm, is the body feels very light, not almost empty, right? But there's something solid about calm, something set, unflappable about calm and tranquility. And when you bring the two together, well, that's a mind that can meet and dance with the wildness, the messiness of human life. And that's what we need. There's an interesting story I read recently in one of the talks I gave for our local community. <clears throat> it's sometimes the title is The Simile of the Mountains. And uh, King Pasanati was visiting the Buddha and they had become friends um, <clears throat> over the years. And uh, they were about the same age, evidently. And uh, the Buddha said to the king, Well now, great king, where are you coming from in the middle of the day? And the, the king had this great answer. Just now, sir, I was engaged in the sort of royal affairs typical of a head-anointed noble warrior king. Intoxicated with the intoxication of sovereignty, obsessed by greed for sensuality, who has attained stable control and rules, having conquered a great sphere of territory on earth. <laughs> so that's what the king said to the Buddha. And so the Buddha gave him this little uh, simile, I guess you could call it. He said, imagine one of your advisors, one of your trusted advisors came from the north and said, you know what, there's a great mountain range and it's mount marching this way, you know, like the range of the Rocky Mountains marching down from the north toward your kingdom. And just after that, someone came from the south and said the same thing. There's a great mountain range south of here and strange as it sounds, it's marching just toward the kingdom and from the east and from the west, right? And then the Buddha says, okay, so what do you do? <laughs> and the king, wisely, because he'd been a friend of the Buddha for a while, says, well, you'd practice, right? You'd, you'd undertake this Dharma training that probably all of us are interested in and 
been practicing developing. And sometimes we talk about it in terms of taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, wakefulness, that's the Buddha, being intimate with Dhamma, the way it is, and expressing enlightened, lovely, generous, compassionate activity, that's Sangha. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And so that seems like a useful metaphor. Here's the passage or the, the verse. Like massive boulders, mountains pressing against the sky, moving in from all sides, crushing the four directions. So aging and death. So that's the symbol for messiness and uncertainty and vulnerability. So aging and death come rolling over living beings. Privileged people, not so privileged people, they spare nothing. They trample everything. Here elephant troops can hold no ground, nor chariots or infantry, nor can wise advisors or wealth win out. So a wise person seeing their own good, steadfast, secure, confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, one who practices the Dhamma in thought, word, word and deed, receives benefit here on earth and after death rejoices in whatever is next. So, that's a really useful teaching. In fact, one of our real enemies as human beings is to somehow imagine that uncertainty and vulnerability and difficulty and aging and death happen to other people, but not me. And, uh, you know, who would have thought four months ago, three months ago, we'd be in this position. Or even more um, starkly here in Minneapolis, who would have thought that many blocks, hundreds of businesses last night were destroyed in the riots? Who would have thought that, you know, 10 days ago? That would have been an absurd thought. So things can change on a dime. We sort of know that intellectually, but but I don't know about you, but I notice in my mind it always seems like that truth, which I understand intellectually, refers to other people. I mean, don't we imagine generally, you know, whatever our particular version of it is, is that I'll be living for a while <laughs> or something like that. And then I remember, oh yeah, but now I'm 62. <laughs> so it's not the same as when I, I mean, that made more sense when I was in my 40s. We had a, we have a, a circle we do here at the center a couple times a year, led by uh, five of us uh, leaders and teachers at the center who identify as males. And it's just a time for men, people who identify with masculinity, to sit in a circle and to reflect about like, what is a wise, skillful expression of masculinity in our time and place? 
And to prepare, we meet, you know, the leaders, the five of us meet, and we try to just have the bigger conversations that we have in the small group. And we brought in this uh, friend of a friend, someone who had worked in some of the state prisons here in Minnesota, especially with sex offenders for many, many years. He's retired now, I believe. And it was really useful having him there, uh, just his experience, because we're one of the things we were reflecting on in our own lives and just generally around masculinity is um, the tendency for aggression and violence. And uh, he shared with us this really, I find, potent little teaching. And uh, please excuse me, I'm going to use the word shit because that's how it was, uh, this little passage that he shared. And it goes like this. If a person continues to eat shit, they eventually end up full of shit. Once they're full of shit, they can't take no more shit. Once they can't take no more shit, they start giving people shit. So, I don't know, that that kind of sums up a lot. And you know, there are a lot of... Uh, examples of what we might imagine the shit is that we've been eating, in a way, forced to eat, like being conditioned here in our culture, or even more generally, just receiving the genetic material we've received as an animal on this planet. We take in a lot. So some of those patterns like, Oh, poor me. That might be, you know, that particular pattern. Or even the pattern of consumerism. Like, I'll be happy if I have more, if I have this, if I have that. So consumerism, that's that's some shit we've been eating. White supremacy, which we're, you know, people who are white, like myself, oblivious to. And generally, you know, regardless of one's background, we get conditioned by culture in our particular way, around class, around gender, around any number of locations, the kind of body we have, and certainly race. And the way that culture and genetic material conditions us, right? We're, we get identified, we get caught, bound up with all of that until we're full of shit. It can't take it anymore, right? Because it's heavy, it's oppressive, the mind having picked up, it's almost like we've picked up a lot of computer viruses, you know, those little things you can get in your computer that drive you crazy because you get the pop-up messages or this or that when you've been not so careful. And it just can make your machine unworkable. You know, and then you got to take it to an expert or start over with a new machine. Well, it's a little bit like that with our minds, with our hearts. Due to the people we've been around and the culture we've raised, been raised in and the parenting. And of course, we're all in our own particular ways wounded, broken. And so all of our interactions, you know, we're lay layering that on each other. And the body, in a way, is the recipient, just like generally the planet is the recipient of all our neurotic thinking and 
patterns and just specifically in our own life, our body receives layer after layer the unavoidable consequences of being neurotic, being caught up in greed, anger, and delusion, as we often talk about it in, in Buddhist terms. And that's why when we sit, maybe even tonight, you know, we get a little stable, sometimes we feel the enormity of the residual tension in the body, in the heart and mind from just having been a fearful, anxious, greedy, deluded human being for all these moments of our lives. And each moment, you know, not fully digested with wisdom awareness, each moment lays down another layer. So what do we do, you know, whether you use the story of being full of shit, <laughs> or you use the story of four great mountain ranges marching towards you in the middle, right? What's a human being to do? You know, and what is clear, you know, we tend to blame or we tend to sort of see through rosy glasses, you know, tinted glasses and want to be positive or hopeful or we want to give up, or we want to get distracted, get busy doing something. But, uh, you know, in the different stories in the Buddha's discourses, or just generally in life, when we're more honest and more grounded, the natural thing that moves in our heart is something like, this has to stop. This is not okay. Now isn't that true that there have been places in our lives, probably many times, where whether it was something specific like some dynamic in an important relationship like a partner, that you really saw in, in a real way that it's off, it's not helpful, harmful for yourself and others. And what ar arises in the heart is, this has to stop. doesn't mean we have a plan, right? It's just, the, all of a sudden the mind has some clarity. The clarity almost always in the beginning isn't what I should do, although we might pretend we know what we should do about it. So just think about some of these places in your life where you've had the clarity, this isn't helping this isn't good. It may be around a particular habit in your life that you've seen in moments with real resonant clarity. This isn't helpful. This isn't in, in, the, in the direction of happiness or peace or bigger societal problems. But we want to really value that clarity. Even though we don't know what to do, we don't know how to fix the problem that we've uh, we're grounded in the first insight. This is not okay. This is not the way. Right? That glimpse, like, you know, with consumerism, it's sort of when you look in your basement or your closet and you see all those things that you thought would make you happy and then you got them and now they're sitting in your closet and now it's a 
burden on your heart because you've got to decide, do I give it away? Well, I don't want to give it away. It costs a lot of money. But it just sits there, you know, collecting dust. Or any, you know, whatever the issue might be. That's just one example. And sometimes there's that clarity. Or you, we catch ourselves wasting time in the internet. And then there's just that illumination. This isn't helping anybody. Reading more news, doing this or that on the internet, it's not helping anybody. It's a real ball and chain. Like any addictive pattern that we might have. And we really want to honor, because if we don't honor it, we can. that can lead to despair and hopelessness. And so once we're in that place, then uh, we had a conversation talk by uh, uh, Common Ground's Associate Director, wonderful teacher, Shelley Graf. Uh, Shelley teaches at Cloud Mountain, uh, the Young Adult Retreat, and then I believe they're going to teach another retreat uh, with Vance Pryor, uh, maybe starting in 2021. Um, but Shelley is also the Associate Director at Common Ground here in Minneapolis, and Shelley was teaching last night. I was listening in um, and addressing the rioting and other difficult stuff going on in Minneapolis around race. And uh, <clears throat> Shelley said something I thought was really useful. Like when we get to that point where there's that sincere insight, this isn't. This has to stop. This isn't right. There's a lot of humility. And in that humility, we want to do something, even though we don't know what to do or we don't know what's really going to fix it. But, but we know not doing anything is in a way to be condemned to repeating. And then the second thing Shelley said is, so you do something and, the, and you do your own work first, which I see as Dharma practice. You know, in terms of racism, it would mean the Dharma practice of studying how race shows up in your mind and heart. That's the work all of us have to do, regardless of our particular racial location. We have to get really wise. It's like a subset of Dharma practice, this work of learning to see race. And especially as a white person, one of the conditioned patterns as a white person, I think it's general, generally true, is to not see race, right? It's, you know, because we live in this dominant role in our culture. So we have this habit of not noticing race. So for white people, we have to train ourselves to always see how race is operating. But this is true for all Dharma practice. We're learning to see something that's here, but we're not conditioned, we're not in the habit to see it. It's always about seeing something that's here and now, but not being recognized. Just like around consumerism, which is killing the planet, right? Because it just seems so natural. Like I've been having trouble with my car lately. It just is dead you know, part of it is I'm not driving it much because of the pandemic, but it's been a problem, you know, way before. And, um, and yeah, just, oh, do I just sell it for whatever I can sell it for? And 
start over with a newer used car? Or, or do I kind of live with the inconvenience of not being able to trust it? And it, I, I feel that like, like, you know, I'm an important human being. I should have a dependable car, you know. And I get in there. I, it's not when you have to turn the key, but you get that point. You know, when I push that button, it should start. I should be able to depend on it. And when this breaks, I should be able to get another one. And you know, I'm not even sure I want to wait till it breaks. Maybe I'll get it before it breaks. You see, there's no end to that. And then if we, if we could only see, it's harder with things like consumerism because we hide the landfills and we don't really see the little plastic particles in the ocean. You know, we don't, we don't notice, like one of the things that is somewhat shocking just in terms of the articles written, but it made me realize, like I remember when we drove around as a kid in the mid-60s, you know, we take vacations or just even around town, and the windshield was full of dead insects. Now, it's relatively rare to see dead bugs on our cars. And I drive through the country because Common Ground has a retreat property hour and a half out of town, you know, so I'm driving. I never see dead bugs on my car. And then, you know, I'm sure most of you have seen, there's been articles about the incredible change in the number of insects over the last number of decades. Just this incredible apocalypse of insect life on this planet that we would be otherwise completely oblivious to. But when we see these, then we have that that powerful movement in the heart. This has got to stop. This has to change. And then that's a very tenuous, powerful place because there's some wisdom in understanding how I'm living, the kind of attitudes, the kind of views, the kind of values I'm living with aren't helping me, aren't helping anybody but we still don't know what to do. So there we are. We know this isn't the way, which is like a pause because that powerful, sincere knowing this has got to stop matches the momentum to just keep doing what we've always done. So there's that pause, like somebody hits a pause. And that's what allows the mind to have some momentary clarity because we're not just getting swept along by our habit energies, because that sincere seeing that this has got to stop, stops, you know, that being sucked in by <clears throat> the impulse to keep doing what we've done before. Do what we've done before, get what we've gotten before, on and on and on. And in Buddhism we call that what? We call that samsara, right? You've heard that word probably, the cycles of suffering where suffering begets suffering. Ignorance leads to suffering, suffering distorts and deludes the mind, so there's more ignorance leading to suffering and on and on for a long, long time. It's one of the, in the tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, one of the imponderables, like can't imagine when this all began where ignorance leads to suffering and suffering leads to ignorance, on and on. So 
<clears throat> just to reflect on those two points. So we're in this sort of stunned place where suddenly there's some clarity. The way I'm living, the way we're living and the way I'm living isn't helpful, isn't helping me or others. Something has to change. We see that. We know that something has to be done, but we don't know what it is. And we know we need to do our work. And our work is connecting, right? It's learning to be intimate. And the doing something is, in Buddhism, it's really about <clears throat> um, the centrality of engagement, which is important to understand because there's so much talk appropriately in Buddhism about retreating, like setting aside 30 minutes to do our daily sit or going on a weekend retreat at Cloud Mountain or you know a longer retreat at Cloud Mountain or somewhere where you can have optimal conditions to get to know the heart and to practice being intimate and free from grasping, right? And to see what's in the way of that. But that work uh, uh, when we can be more secluded from the messiness and the difficulty is just to get some greater clarity about how to meet life as it actually is, how to have a relationship with another human being. I remember a long time ago Jack Kornfield said, you think your practice is going well? Go visit your mother, right? Or go visit that difficult sibling or go, you know, run for political office, or read the news, or, you know, whatever our particular trigger might be. Can the freedom that I'm experiencing, is it dependent on my privileged circumstances right now, that I have this hour where nothing bothers me? One of the things, you know, I, I sometimes think I'm a pretty calm person, but for like two days or so, uh, because of the rioting, there's been helicopters. And because we're so close, it's like the helicopters are right overhead. I'm assuming police helicopters, but maybe news helicopters. But that, that sound of the helicopters just starts to eat away at any calm or equanimity. And I really got to the place where it's like, is there anything I can shoot at them? <laughs> Not really, but just like really wanting that sound to end. Really feeling like that sound was out to get me. But it was actually my mind was going after that sound. You know, the aversion in my mind was attacking the sound. The sound was just the sound. So the, the point, again, just that before I go on, is that we, we need to honor those moments where we're stopped in our track, the sort of momentum of our habit energies, where we have enough clarity and the heart says with real sincerity, this has got to stop, this has got to change, this is not the way, honey, this is not the way to a resonant peace, or healing for myself or for anybody. And then to sustain that 
we need humility because all of our habit energy is to arrogantly pretend that we know what to do. So then when we clarify the importance of humility, then even though we're instructed to do something and to do our own work, right? We do that, we do both of those things with humility. And humility is just another word for mindfulness. I think humility, doesn't it, isn't it related to the word for humus, the kind of earth, good compost? And there's something real and grounded about humility. It's not a stance, you know, it's not like a idea. Oh, I don't know anything. It's really more about valuing being connected, being um, listening both in terms of the breadth, but also the depth, connecting subtly with what's here and now, but also, and in Buddhist terms, when we think about the breadth of awareness, we're really talking about conditionality, like cause and effect. When there's what, does this moment come to be in this way? And when I'm relating in this way to this moment, what gets set in motion? So when we talk about like, oh, I see how things work. I see the, how this has come to be. So that's the humility is to realize there's something to learn by being receptive, by being open. If I, you know, that Zen teaching, if the cup is already full, can't learn anything, you can't get anything new, it's already full. So that willingness to be open and empty, knowing that I don't know. And the other piece of that humility that I think is important to mention is a real turning, like when, when I'm willing to listen, like I know the way I'm living isn't helping. And there's that pause and, and some humility. Then that one of the things that comes in then when I start to listen and open, mindfully aware, is I sense this more subtle truth that the cause for suffering is here even though it seems like it's you that's making me suffer, or this situation, it really is here. And that's a real turning point for a human being to start to acknowledge our complicity in our own suffering. Like I was saying around the irritating sound of the helicopter, I was sort of eating away at my equanimity. And it's just so easy to think that helicopter sound is bad. But actually, when we look at it, the crunch, the thing that was really bad, was my aversion to the sound. The chopper sound is not bad nor good, it's just the sound being known. What's really hard for me to bear is my aversion to the sound. And that's optional. There can be the sound without aversion. We just don't know how to do that yet, maybe. Or we don't believe it. So part of this humility is realizing 
that the cause is here. That's what really gets us to listen. So it's a little bit like that, you know, even in terms of the ongoing issue of racism in Minneapolis, but probably most places. It's so easy as a white person to, well, it's out there, the problem. I'm not a racist. And nothing ever changes. So hopefully then, some of us white people start going, you know, with humility, we listen and we observe and we feel and we start to locate the work that needs to be done here, what's not being seen, what fear, what kind of denial, assumed privilege is happening here. That is just the, maybe it's happening everywhere else too, but our work is here. And that's why working with race is so similar to working with just the general Dharma practice of waking up. Because what we're waking up to is here but hidden. Like sexism is here but hidden. Racism is here but hidden. All of our psychological patterns, maybe being defensive, or maybe it's the oh poor me, maybe it's about shame, you know, whatever the particular patterns we each of us have, distinct as they might be, it's all about pausing, thinking it's about something external and having that place I know something's off and I know I don't know the way so I'm going to listen with real humility subtly with real breath and with that sincerity I'll see something that I haven't seen before and that's why that's what we mean by insight that's Literally, the definition of insight is seeing something we haven't seen. And that's really an appropriate aspiration for us human beings. You know, every night or every morning, we should find a way to, uh, in, a, in a kind of an emotional, um, de- with an emotional depth, resolve today, let's say, if we do it in the morning, resolve to learn something about the roots the cause of suffering that I haven't seen before. And to learn something, this is related, of course, about the cause for release for this heart and for the world that I haven't seen before. Right? Every day, every way, we want to get a little wiser. So we should have that heartfelt resolve to learn, to have insight. We don't need to hold back. We don't need to be shy about that. One of the powerful ways this is talked about in the tradition, it's, it's really a... You can really reflect on this for decades. And uh, you see it in different places in the suttas. What I'm reading from right now is just a, a wonderful... Reflection the Buddha recommends we do every day, the five remembrances, five subjects for frequent recollection. Maybe you've heard this. We chant this at Common Ground uh, usually once a month. And it, the first part is, I'm, the, I'm of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. 
I'm of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I'm the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And then here's the fifth recollection that the Buddha recommends we bring up in our mind every day. I am the owner of my karma. So karma means action, intentional actions. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related to my actions, abide, supported by my actions. Whatever intentional actions I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. And uh, hopefully I have time tonight. I want to share a little bit of an article that Joanna Macy, some of you know, a wonderful Dharma teacher and long-time activist. She's quite old now, probably in her in the 80s, I'm guessing at least. And um, in this, in one of her articles, Joanna Macy says, "Action is not something you do." It's something you are. And this has to do with, you know, I was talking about the breadth of awareness, seeing the conditional, lawful, cause and effect nature. And so who I am right now, who you are right now, we're action begetting action. We're the activity of the mind and body, and the activity of the mind and body is conditioning the activity of the mind and body in an ongoing way. So like Joanna Macy says, action is not something we do, action is something we are. So we're the owner, we're related to our action, we're heirs of our action. So then how do we, you know, it's almost like uh, the momentum of our habit energies, especially, you know, as we get older, we get in our grooves, you know, the way I relate to my wife, my partner, the way I relate to food, the way I relate to this and to, to that, you know, these habits, the longer we practice them, the deeper the groove to just do it the same way, doing what we've done before, getting the results we've gotten before, on and on. So what we can do, though, is we can have that moment where we, in a sense, step outside of the habit of doing the same thing, getting the same result. And wisdom, awareness, mindful awareness, it sees, in a sense, the writing on the wall, sees what's getting set in motion. Oh, this isn't the way. This isn't helpful. This is stressful. The sort of ongoingness of one thing leading to the other repeating habits, oh, this is not what the heart deeply desires. The heart deeply desires to be unbound, to be free of being bound up. And this has the flavor of being bound up. This is not the way. And then there's that humility, right? And that deep respect about action. So what can change action? The ongoingness of one thing conditioning the next. Well, it's that wisdom awareness, right? Because like exactly what shocks the system when we see is seeing what's 
is we're really seeing the karma or the karmic fruits of how we're living. You know how it is. When you have some clarity about some addictive pattern that you're in the middle of, like maybe for some of you, it's like getting angry when you're in traffic and you know, maybe you get a little road rage and then maybe one day there's some stability of present moment awareness, like a crystal clear mirror that there you are road raging, but there is this part of the mind that is reflecting it back and seeing, oh, this is what it looks like to be caught up in road rage. And it's deeply shocking and maybe humiliating, but in a wholesome sense, it kind of shocks the mind like, that's what I look like? That's what I'm adding to the world? That's who I am right now? This is not the way. It could be any number of things that we see. And, and we're really seeing that force of karma, but we're also seeing the way out. Because that moment where we see this is not the way changes how things are unfolding. It's the new input. And it's a very potent input. When we see we're driving directly to hell, but we see that sincerely and clearly, it's not so easy to keep driving to hell. You know, there's, that's why there's that pause. Oh, oh. But unless we can, we need to learn to really appreciate that pause of not knowing. I know one thing, this isn't the way. I don't know what the way is, but I know this isn't the way. And so there's that pregnant pause and then the humility comes in and what and then that humility is strengthened with this poignant compassion where we realize we've been complicit in our our own suffering and the suffering of others and so we want to be careful full of care so that inspires the continuity of mindfulness because it's the only thing to do basically to collect data so we engage our lives, we do something, and we do our own work, which is tracking the experience of our heart and unpacking it. And we move forward in life in this more tentative, humble, mindful way. We become a devoted student of our own heart. How's the heart doing? What's it feeling? What's it telling me? What's the feedback here? Going to hell or things loosening up, lightening up, making things worse or moving towards healing, right? I mean, that's the relevant question. The way I'm relating right now, even now, right? doesn't matter what moment. The way I'm listening to Mark right now or the way I'm giving this talk right now, is it in the direction of this heart getting bound up or is it in the direction of things lightening up? And actually, nobody else can tell us. We have to do the work ourselves, don't we? We have to check in. Well, how, how is the heart doing? Is this in the direction of release or not? And to this point, one of my favorite suttas or passages, um, the title is translated as The Thorn in Your Heart. And this one 
is translated by a wonderful teacher, Andy Olensky. He does a lot of interesting stuff online that you can see. I don't know if it's through uh, Tricycle or maybe Buddha Dharma, uh, Buddha Dharma to uh, online magazines. And so he translates this discourse this way. Fear is born from arming oneself. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. Now think about the Buddha saying this. This is really poignant. Seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water too shallow, so hostile to one another. Seeing this, I became afraid. Right, Seeing the world as it is, my own greed, anger, and delusion, the wider world's greed, anger, and delusion, like fish flopping around in not enough water. Seeing this, I became afraid. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. I long to find myself a place unscathed, but I could not see it. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. But then I discerned here a thorn, hard to see, lodged deep in the heart. It's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs around in all directions. So if that thorn is taken out, one does not run and settles down. And this is what the humility reveals, right? It's it's precisely dropping the any kind of arrogant certainty that I know what I need to do to feel good. And we have that humility. I know how I'm living, how I'm thinking, how I'm understanding is off in a big way or a little way, but it's off. So with humility, I take up openness, mindful awareness, humility, and then that that's how we discern the thorn deep in the heart, which is this misunderstanding of what's happening, you know, selfing, we say in Buddhism, where the mind has this chronic, persistent habit of framing things in terms of a separate self, that everything refers back to. My happiness refers back to that separate sense of self. My unhappiness refers back. All my opinions refer back to that sense of a permanent me. And that's just a chronic and persistent habit of the mind. And there's no way, no way to uproot, to change that habit without seeing it. And there's no way to see it without that humility. We have to hit the wall where we realize, and this is like, there's some disadvantages to having a relatively privileged life because it's, we're, we're pretty sure we got it, you know, like we can get by in life and be happy getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, basically pursuing our likes, pursuing things we dislike, pursuing getting rid of things we dislike, and that's seems like the appropriate tactic when we have, you know, relatively good fortune. So we want to really 
notice those places in, in life that kick our butt. Maybe it's your partner, <laughs> not, not your partner, your relationship, which is in your own heart and mind, right? Or maybe it's, uh, you know, social political conditions that break your heart wide open, that reveal a kind of um, brokenness that, that you don't have a good answer to. It could be any number of things. The aging body is a common one for people. Raising children. I didn't raise a child, um, but I, I have raised a couple cats. <laughs> and that's hard enough. So those of you who have raised kids, you know, that, that might be it. So there are any number of things, but whatever it is, we eventually, it's not so easy, see it as a teacher. Oh, you're here to teach me. So even the pandemic and all the difficulty that might come from that. This is, uh, some of you know, Saida Utejaniya, a really wonderful Burmese Buddhist monk and, and great teacher that I've had the good fortune to practice with. And uh, a friend of mine, Doug McGill, recently interviewed Sayada about advice of how to practice in uh, and with the, at the during the time of COVID nineteen, the virus, and I forget if it was. I think it might have been in in Buddha Dharma or Lion's Roar. It got published. This interview just came out a month or so ago, um, and this is just one of the little pieces of that, where Doug asked Sayada, this Burmese monk, how should a person practice to maintain awareness and equanimity amid all the fear and anxiety that COVID-19 has unleashed? And this was his answer. As far as the practice is concerned, I can only say practice as usual. I only give instructions for practice, and the practice instructions are always the same. There's almost a mantra in the way I teach, which is, we're not practicing to make things happen in the mind, such as equanimity, or you could say, such as non-attachment. We're not practicing to make things happen in the mind, such as equanimity, or to make things go away, such as fear or anxiety. Now think about how, those of you who've been meditating for a while, think about how many times when we sit, we really are practicing to make this go away. You know, oh God, I'm feeling really, you know, wired. I'm going to go sit and make that wiry feeling go away. So he says, that's not why we do it. Rather, we practice in order to observe things as they are happening and to understand. Rather, we practice in order to observe things as they are happening and to understand. Or as a teaching colleague of mine says, we practice to collect data, right? So a moment of balance, present moment awareness, is a moment of collecting data. Ah, this is how it is now. This experience of the mind and body, mind or body, is being known. This is being known. This is how it is. That's a data point. That's all we're doing. Because good data changes everything. Bad data 
keeps things spinning in the way they've been spinning, doing the same thing, getting the same result. And what leads to bad data? We're basically seeing through our habit energies. And what leads to good data? Knowing that the we, we can't get away from our habit energy, so it's not like seeing without habit energies, but we start to notice the habit energies, right? That's how we become free of our neurotic tendencies. We notice them. Oh, the mind's defensive. Oh, dullness, sleepiness. Oh, restlessness. You know, the usual characters that we see in the heart and mind all the time. But unfortunately, most of the time, they're there, but the mind is unaware. It's just not interested in the stability, the settledness, that calm, really allows for a greater sensitivity, where we can actually see these qualities of mind and be somewhat free of them. So I mentioned this article, maybe I'll end by sharing a little bit from this wonderful article. Um, and uh, you can get it if you have a subscription to Tricycle. It's interesting how this article written in 1993, so almost 30 years ago, about the environment, you know, is like so right on. There was this wisdom 30 years ago and we just, you know, collectively weren't listening. And it's called uh, article, Schooling Our Intention by Joanna Macy from Tricycle, winter of 93. And she starts off with this sentence, how can we engage in action on behalf of the earth and not get consumed, not go crazy? Good question. And of course, could be about engagement with the environment, but it could be any number of things. You might have health problems. How can you engage? How can you do your best to take care of your body? Or maybe you're dealing with trauma from long ago. How can I deal with this emotional and psychological pain from long ago and not go crazy and not get consumed by it? How can I be a good human being, a good parent, a good partner without going crazy and getting consumed? And then she, she sort of paints a picture that fits so many of the difficulties in her life. First, she says, there's the staggering range of the crisis. So whether we're talking about the environmental crisis or racism or any number of the things we have to deal with, saving up for retirement. It's complex. The range of the problem is complex. And there's an overwhelming amount of data. It's like we can never become perfectly competent with all of these things that were unavoidable, unavoidably responsible as a human being. And there's a lot of, you know, the chances of us actually being successful aren't necessarily very good. And then the, she mentioned, the fourth thing she mentions is there's often a taboo against uh, being honest about the problems we have. You know, it's sort of, we're 
co-conspirators and you know like I won't ask you about that sticky situation in your life if you don't ask me about the things that I'm trying to be in denial of and it can be even a little dangerous to sort of bring things up because there's this conspiracy of silence around a lot of the painful places in our lives and in our society you know all of that makes us exhausted Right, so it's a real setup. And the answer, of course, is this the wisdom that comes with this tranquility and insight, the deepening of understanding. And she talks about, you know, understanding the nature of things as what's really going to help us. So, going back to the question, you know, that I asked about this this sort of introducing this talk, like how do we show up in these uncertain times? How do we take care of our heart in the world in this truth of uncertainty and vulnerability and the great brokenness and messiness of our lives? What does skill look like? So she says, well, skill looks like this deepening of understanding about our true nature, which comes from this humility. And then she makes this really interesting point. I want to read just a few sentences here before I end. This true nature of ours tells us what our power is. Understanding power is absolutely critical because you can have all the smarts and devotion and information to carry forth a, a campaign of action. But if you are still falling for the old notion of power, you are crippling yourself. The old notion tells us that power is what one substance does to another piece of substance. And what can it do? It can push it around. It can exert its will. Hence, we have identified power with domination power over. And we've imagined that power means having strong defenses, really being invulnerable so others don't push us around. In contrast, an image frequently used by systems thinker thinkers is the nerve cell. And she goes on to describe how uh, a nerve cell that's healthy is connected in many, many, many ways. And she coins the phrase, you know, having power with. And this goes back to what I was saying before about we are action or about karma. So the power like to make a difference, to change, is to get to be intimate and to really feel and see and that collecting of data, really seeing things, changes things. Because this awareness, you know, the awareness doesn't have a location. It isn't me up here looking down on my life, my body, my mind. The awareness interpenetrates, right? Like whatever, like the sound of my voice right now, the knowing and the hearing, they're not separ separable. You can't, like the knower and the sound, no, no our subjective experience right now of hearing 
is there's hearing, being known. And if I look at my experience from one way, I emphasize it's being known. And if I look at my experience of hearing from another angle, I'm emphasizing the sound or the words that are being heard. So the mind, the knowing mind, is right intimate with the objects of experience. But we miss that because we're projecting this deluded sense of being apart, the separate one to whom, for whom experience refers back to me, right? And that leads to fear, it leads to anxiety, it leads to greed, anger, and delusion, all of the neurotic patterns. So this, and, and it lives with this idea of power over and having a lot of defense, right? A lot of our physical tension is somehow thinking that we're building up armor by being tight as opposed to being soft. I'll just end with this point, you know, just one of the fruits of I've been married uh, almost 30 years. We've lived together for 30 years and have been married almost 30 years. And uh, But, you know, we still have arguments and they could be intense. But I notice that we have, I, th I think it's true for wind too, but uh, I know better my own experience, but this capacity to be, you know, really there in the <laughs> argument or whatever, but more and more soft. So there's something about like it's ripping, it's happening, the personality's getting triggered, things are, but there's a sense of space. The mind or wisdom doesn't lose the sense of space, the space of knowing. So it's not like there's somebody that needs to be defended, somebody who has to have power over or protection from. There's just a sense of like whatever this is, it doesn't have a problem with life, even the really difficult parts of life. And that's something we can explore in our sits and throughout the day. We could just see if I can have that stance or that perspective of humility, softness, intimacy, and non-grasping. And to really see that our role is really just to collect data and let nature be nature, let life happen, the personality happen. But we're really there, we're trusting really being there in that soft, interested, receptive way changes thing in the, in the direction that really will take care of us in the end. It's been really nice being with you tonight, but I wish all of you safety and, and success, and may our practice be a, a benefit, not just for our own well-being and safety, but a real contribution to all those around us as well. So thanks everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.